Recording in progress. Good morning, everybody. Uh, actually, it's good afternoon. It's good morning where you guys, some of you guys are out in the Midwest. Um, uh, uh, welcome to Conversations with Calvin, We the Species. Uh, and this is a special little panel that I've been greatly anticipating. And, and by we've been talking about this, setting this up for a while, and, and now it's here, and we, we just sat and, and BSed for an hour. Uh, the, the title of this panel is Lifeblood 2, based on uh, a book uh, that Gary Hill has put together. Uh, and uh, Bill Camp and Del Merritt uh, have contributed stories to that, which I've read uh, last night. Uh, I created a very uh, somber atmosphere for me to come in here. I lowered the lights. Uh, and, and I read uh, from the PDF that Gary sent me the stories that have been put together uh, and they're horrific, vampiric. Uh, and as I said before, we went on and I'm so thrilled you guys are here uh, that um, my takeaway, my overwhelming takeaway from, from Lifeblood 2 is the believability of the stories that I read on the fiction side. And then there's a, a, a non-fiction element. So uh, I'm so thrilled to spend uh, this early June Sunday with you guys. Uh, and, and it's really fascinating. Your world is, is fascinating. Uh, and, 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 and again, I'm really appreciative and thrilled you're here. So I've said my Johnny Carson monologue. Remember him, guys? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't have a lot of humor here, but this is not humorous <laughs> stuff. But I've done my Johnny Carson monologue. And let me uh, first introduce Gary Hill, uh, uh, author, a music critic, uh, the whole package. And Gary's been here before. Uh, so, a little background, Gary. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, as Calvin said, you guys have probably been a little sick of hearing about me because I've been on Calvin's show so many times. But um, in this case, we're talking about uh, like Blood 2. And uh, I sort of uh, came at that, you know, I've actually probably, I got into music journalism years ago um, because I was passionate about music. But honestly, if I went back far enough, it's the horror and the science fiction that was the real thing that drove me for so long. And I discovered music later and got really passionate about that too. Um, so, and, and to me, probably my earliest from a horror point of view was Dark Shadows and uh, Barnabas Collins. And so vampires have a very special place in, in my heart. Um, but so, you know, uh, when I started writing, I think, I think actually the very first horror story I remember writing was a, a vampire story, I think. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of a part of me. And, and I like doing, like, Lifeblood 2, obviously, is a sequel to the first Lifeblood. And uh, I just like sharing vampire stories. And I'm going to be doing one, collecting all my vampire stories. I just wrote two more this last week um, that are going to go into it. And that's going to be probably next year it's going to come out. So Next up. And then, like I said, I run Tales of Wonder and Dread Publishing, okay. uh, where we do science fiction and horror, and then also Spooky Ventures, where I do uh, videos. I decided I wanted to get into videos because that seemed to be the wave of the future, and 
start doing some videos on there, but uh, that's that's pretty much it. Okay. Uh, Bill. Hi, I'm Bill Camp. Uh, I'm originally from Erie, Pennsylvania, which is very appropriate for a horror writer. And I moved to Suffolk, Virginia, and believe it or not, now I live near a place called the Great Dismal Swamp. So horror just kind of follows me everywhere here in Suffolk. Um, I'm also a member of the Horror Writers Association. We have t-shirts, Virginia chapter, uh, living here in Virginia now. I'm a short story writer and uh, poet uh, of horror, have uh, published several items around these days and including uh, one vampire story in Life's Blood too. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I also teach uh, Norfolk State University, a traditionally black university in Paul D. Camp Community College. And um, something that I might bring up later on here, I also work with individuals with intellectual disabilities a couple times a week. Wow. So um, I'm out there all over the place. It's <laughs> wow. great. Next up, uh, and, and this kind of really fits the, the motif uh, of this Sunday afternoon gathering. Uh, we, we have uh, Del Merritt, um, who's sideways. And, and the spirits that brought us together here have decided to put him sideways. Yeah. Uh, but it's more important not to necessarily see him, but it's more important to hear his words. So, Del, take it away. Um, it's really funny because I think, uh, despite the fact that we're probably about 12 years apart, Gary and I, our, our stories are very similar. Um, I grew up really being interested in horror movies and, and stories and, and then got into music and, uh, in a way, all, all those worlds kind of collided for me and, and I mixed them all together. And I suppose that's how I first met Gary actually was when he was doing, um, the Strange Sounds of Cthulhu, which was a book he, he had written about, um, you know, how so many musicians had been inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. And um, he had contacted, you know, bands that were very popular and bands that nobody ever heard of um, to talk about, you know, that that strange world where these places meet, these interests meet. And... Um, yeah, so if I were to say what my bio is, I'd basically just be saying the same thing Gary saying. Uh, Dark Shadows was a huge influence on me when I was a kid. Um, the big things for me when I was young were mythology and folklore, uh, especially the darker ends of it. And um, of course, I went through the phase of astronomy and dinosaurs, as all kids do. Um, but those other things just stuck with me. And um, I became a musician sort of accidentally, despite the fact that I was always interested in music, it just sort of happened. Um, my brother started playing drums, my older brother started playing drums. And so I just, well, that's what you do, you know? So I just copied what he was doing. And, uh, when it came to art and writing, again, it was just something that I, I just picked up. I didn't really know why. And there was never a point where I sat down and said, oh, I'm going to be a writer or I'm going to be a musician or anything. And I just, just did it. And I find to this day that, especially with writing, I just have to do it. And um, I'm glad that I've finally been able to recently actually publish things, even though, you know, they're not very widely read. Um, there, there is some feeling of accomplishment, accomplishment and purpose to it that I am constantly 
you know, churning out words and upon words. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that's basically that's basically about it. Uh, I do want to say that um, uh, Dell and I are, are, are Jersey guys, as opposed to you guys in the Midwest. Uh, and and um, what what really draws me in, particularly now, um, is is where Dell lives and some of the experiences I've had paranormal wise. Uh, um, so my my comment to you all out there about Lifeblood 2, which we're going to talk about now, uh, is as I was reading, uh, as I was reading it and taking my notes as, as a new journalist, uh, is the believability of the stories you're talking about, many of which are vampiric. And, and, and you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's the errors that you create uh, and it, it makes it really believable and kind of scratch your head. And then, and, and a lot of these stories really draw you in. And as I said to Bill, um, uh, the story that he had contributed kind of ticked me off, uh, you know, uh, cause I, I got really into the character and then whatever, I'm not giving nothing away. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, Gary, uh, let's start talking about Lifeblood 2, um, the origins and, and how and who and where. Well, as I said, um, I'm big into vampire stuff. I, I've always loved vampire stuff. And very early on, um, I started creating my own vampire universe, one short story at a time. And I decided there needed to be some kind of consistency of rules and things. And if you really look at vampire fiction, those rules tend to vary from one writer to another. And I decided, okay, I'm going to create an entire universe of vampires, but it's going to be one short story at a time versus one long book or a number of novels. And so over time, I've been writing these. And uh, in 2018, when I first launched Tales of Wonder and Dread, one of the first three books I launched was uh, Lifeblood, which was a collection of vampire stories. I had several of mine in there. And we didn't have any nonfiction that time around. Um, I don't know why I just wasn't looking at doing that at the time. And um, so then there was enough, I had enough fiction and I knew there was enough other stories out there. And I thought, well, you know what, let's do a second one. And so I decided to put this one together and I thought, there have been a lot of stories that are supposed true life vampires. And so I thought, well, let's talk about some of those in there. Let's do a nonfiction section. Um, I should say, when you talk about the believability, you know, I'm someone who's very interested in paranormal stuff. Uh, I'm very interested in all that stuff. I've gone out of my way to put myself in experiences to try to, to get some of that stuff. The problem with me is, and my wife says, I could see a ghost face to face and I'd be coming up with some other explanation for it, um, is I'm always looking at the scientific angle and I'm very much a disbeliever. Um, I want to believe, but it's going to take an incredibly, incredibly high level of evidence to convince me of anything. Um, so, you know, from my point of view, everything has to have a scientific basis of some sort. And so when I write fiction like that, even, 
it, it, yeah, there's a fantasy angle. There are things that I don't really explain. For instance, if you read all my stories, I never get into too many details about how, how someone converts someone into a vampire. There's a process, and I, and, and I do mention there's an involved process, but I never get into it because you really don't need that information. You just need to know that there's a process. But I do need certain scientific facts that sort of go from story to story to story. Um, like in my particular universe, some of the old legends were literally either created by or they were at least um, perpetuated by the vampires as a way to distract people from what they were, like the whole thing of vampires not having a reflection. Yes, they do, but they like that, that story being out there because then when they see them over the reflection, well, that's not a vampire. Um, you know, and, and one of the vampires in one of the stories, actually, I don't think it's in this one, but I think it's in some of the other ones, actually talks about how that's really silly. I mean, what happens with your clothes? Do they not, they show up, but you don't show up. But, you know, so there's a, there's a whole factual scientific sort of angle I try to put in there. I mean, it's pseudoscience, I'm sure, but at least there's something there to kind of give it that sort of believability. And, um, and I try as much as I can to pull some real world stuff into it. I mean, obviously these people live in some alternate world, alternate universe, but like the story with the Beatles, I made sure I had all the facts and the dates and everything right, knew what hotel they were at, knew what the dates were. And um, also when I talked about the uh, gentleman who's the vampire and that one who's the narrator, um, I made sure I got the facts about his military service right and, um, you know, things like that so that it actually has a believability to it. Now, I should mention that the other fiction stories in there from other people do, are not in the same shared universe. My six uh, fiction stories all are. Um, you know, so I guess, I guess that's basically what I would say about Lifeblood too. except that we've also got some really good, I like the range of the stories. I mean, my story, uh, I Saved the Beatles, I honestly don't even think that of that as a horror story. I think that's sort of a feel-good vampire story. And of all the vampire characters I've written, I think that's probably the most noble character. He's actually probably a good guy. Um, he never really does anything that's questionable. He's, he's trying to be a good person. Uh, some of the other characters, especially when I've gotten into some later stuff, some of the other characters, I mean, they present things as, yes, I'm a good guy. But really, if you look at what they're doing, they're not. They're actually monsters. Still, vampires are monsters. I mean, they survive on other people for their existence. And I mean, I suppose you could say that for any life form. But, you know, um, I mean, we all live on other life forms. But um, that particular character is actually a very noble vampire. There's another one, uh, the one in um, uh, No Sugar Plums, that character is a very noble and good character, but they're the exceptions. I mean, all of them think they're good. It's like it's like you read about any kind of a story, the supervillains always think they're the good guy. You know, they always have an angle in their own mind where they're the good guy. And these vampires think the same thing too. They're just surviving, they're doing what they have to do, but you know, they're not good guys, really. Um, but yeah, what I was saying is that the other stories in there are not in the shared universe, just mine are. Uh, but we have, and we have another one, uh, Vampire Edna from R.C. Uh, Mulhair, that story is actually very funny. I think that's sort of a really dark, humorous story. Um, so there's a, like, a wide range of stuff in there. 
By the way, um, the, the no sugar flames, I got a kick out of, again, I'm not an expert in, in this stuff, but I got a kick out of the name he, he took, uh, Vincent Kolchak. Yes, now that, okay, so it started with, started with Dark Shadows, and then as I, when, when Night Stalker came on, I was a huge Night Stalker fan. And so when, uh, and I still am, and we've got all the movies and we've got the, the whole series on disc, and um, I watch it every weekend. But, uh, you know, when, he, when I was looking for a name for the journalist to take, I mean, that journalist really, in my head, was always Kolchak anyway. And so I thought, well, we'll take Vincenzo and combine that with Kolchak and we get Vincent Kolchak. So that, that was a definite nod to. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll talk about, uh, uh, I, I watched Kolchak and talk about believability. Oh, yeah. It was so, that's one of the, to me, one of the magnificent aspects to, to his character is, man, you just believe this stuff. My goodness. One, one of my friends said, you know, there was, there was, there was a movement to get a second season of that show. And um, uh, uh, Gary McGavin was actually not a proponent of getting a second season because he had a lot of extra work thrown on him. And I don't think he was really happy with the direction a lot of it was going in. But one of my friends uh, said, who actually has something in here, Mike Korn, who actually has a nonfiction piece in here, Mike said that, you know, he thinks that if they had actually gotten the second season of that show, that Kolshak would go down in history as one of the greatest characters in television ever. Correct. And I think he's probably right. That character was so great. So great. It's so great to take that subject and make it so real and believable. That's why it was such a great character. You know, you have to scratch your head. It was just great. I, I wasn't... I. I wasn't aware it was only one season. I, I didn't. Um, anyway, moving on, uh, Bill. Um, uh, you, you gave your, your intros. Uh, and uh, I am um, looking. Uh, I, I got a, um, well, we talked about, uh, you wrote The Vampire's Haunted House. Um, uh, so, um, you know, in, in, well, I'll ask this to all of you, but where where does all this inspiration, where do these ideas, how does that come to you? Um, well, for me, anyway, it was, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you have your haunted house movies, you get your haunted house subgenre of horror, and you have your vampire subgenre of horror. So I thought, well, what if we combined a couple of things, you know, <laughs> have the, the vampires, why the house is haunted? Um you know, and uh, my character, uh, Tim Morgan, uh, was inspired because I do work with individuals with intellectual disabilities and uh, people sometimes try to take advantage of them. So it's an exploitation factor going on in there. So I felt like, um, you know, how, how would he do in a situation like that? You know, thrust into it by quote unquote friends who you don't really feel like they're, they're real friends to him anyway. <laughs> for thrusting him in there. But um, uh, so, you know, I mean, I, and I also play, I don't want to give away too much of the ending either, but uh, with some of those tropes that we always know about vampires, you know, like uh, should, should they really die in the sunlight? You know, those kinds of things. And um, 
you know, what happens when they dissolve, you know, can they still come back and, and, in those kinds of ideas. So, you know, to me, it's always been amazing how much everyone thinks what they know about vampires actually came from Bram Stoker. You know, it's just, um, it's kind of amazing. And even in his, it was changed in the movies because in Bram Stoker's Dracula, vampires don't die in sunlight. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they become mortal is what he says. You know, you could, um, you know, hit him in the head with a club or something and maybe kill him in the sunlight, but you couldn't, you know. Uh, but, you know, it just amazes me how much of what everyone thinks they know about vampires actually just came from Bram Stoker, not even, and very little of his uh, novel, his original novel, Dracula, came from the original legends. A little bit of it, but not much. You know, wooden stakes uh, might be one of the only things. You know, and I mean, he came up with his own... Um, things that make vampires more powerful and less powerful, right? Uh, a rose on the coffin would uh, contain him in the coffin. You could not open the coffin if a simple rose was put on there. So I think it's kind of cool what Gary was saying with some of his things, you know, to, to, you know, create your own version of what makes a vampire stronger and, and weaker and, you know, uh, you know, create your own um, mythology, if you will, of, of uh, vampires. And I think that's, you know, that's always cool for anyone to do, right? <clears throat> Doesn't have to follow the, right. the Bram Stoker motif or or even the ancient legends from Europe or, or anywhere else in the world. You can almost create your own with them. Which is what you do. Which is absolutely. Absolutely. Which is what, uh, what, absolutely what you do. Um, it, it is. Uh, I'm not giving anything away either, but uh, it was a hell of an ending. Um, <laughs> uh, we talked about it before we went on air. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you about my emotionality <laughs> from the ending, but because uh, you know, you start well with everything. You 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 build an attachment to a character. Sometimes you find some ways to identify with the character. Um, you know, the card game. Yeah, I understand. I've always been a fan of tragedies. I'll just say that much, right? <laughs> well, tragedy is is reality. Um, it is, unfortunately. Yes, we have to deal with that. Um, so, moving on to uh, Mr. Sideways. By the way, that was a great movie. Uh, I'm completely off topic with your own movie, people. Uh, that movie, Sideways? I, I never saw it. You never saw it? No, I'm just living it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you are living it. Great movie. I watch it every couple of months because uh, it's a story. Uh, just a wonderful movie. Um, uh, I identify with it because he, he, the character, the main character, is an author, and he ain't he ain't getting he ain't getting published so quickly. And and um, um, Anyway, it has to deal with drinking and sideways. But anyway, you're sideways um, uh, and uh, a murder of convenience. Um, yeah, I have to say, uh, it really makes you think. And we discussed this before we went on air. Uh, you really, um, I, I tip my hat to you because it made me really think and ponder and and, and try to figure things out, which is, I guess, part of your intent 
Yeah. Um, I, I wanted one part of it to be fairly obvious what was going on. And that was revealed at the very end um, with the husband, his, his interest in what was happening. Um, but the other one, I wanted to be much more subtle and kind of people have to figure it out themselves and piece, piece it together. Um, and in fact, I, I actually had to go back and rewrite the ending of that to make sure that it stood out more because as vague as it is now, it was a lot more vague before. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, and again, you trying to not give anything away. Um, it's a very short story. So it, you figure it out pretty, pretty early on what's going on. Um, I, I'd just like to touch on what the other guys were saying about um, how we all create our own universe for different characters that may come from folklore or, or whatever. Um, I have a ton of vampire stories. Um, very few, only a handful are sort of separate from longer series that where they're not necessarily the, uh, the main character of the, of the story, um, but somebody that the protagonist of those series would meet. Um, but I, I did do basically the same thing as Gary did. I, I like his angle that um, the stupid things that people believe about vampires were made up by vampires so, so that they could say, oh, I'm not a vampire. You can see me in the mirror. Um, yeah, vampires are my stories. I think the, the, uh, the vampire in, in Murder of Convenience is probably the most classic in the way that we think of them from films. Um, it's, there's sort of an elegantness about that vampire. Um, but in most of my other stories, vampires are not what they believe they are. And they're, not, they're certainly not what people believe they are. Um, they, though they may be attractive, they're still corpses. And um, the one element that I, I put in now and again is that when they go to sleep at night in their coffin, which they don't have to sleep in the coffin, they just need to be out of the sun. Or so they go to sleep in the day, rather, sorry. Um, they're not actually sleeping. They're actually dying again. And so they, they become a completely lifeless corpse as they would have been before they, res they were resurrected. And then when the sun goes down or you know what, whatever signals the time for them to get up, they go through this long process of extremely painful process of coming back to life. And um, there, there are other characters that, that note this and they're saying, look, this is not something you want. It's not romantic. It's not fun. Um, and uh, yeah, once they've, they've come back to life, it even takes them a while to sit there and figure out what the hell has just happened to me, you know? Uh, and then they get on the stick and say, oh, yeah, I got to go eat somebody. So, uh, yeah. And then, you know, the, the means of death, I like to use the, some of the old ones. Sunlight, I like. Uh, um, something through the heart. It doesn't have to be wooden stake. Um, in, in, the, in a lot of the folklore, it had to be particular types of wood, like hawthorn. Uh, if you use just, you know, balsa wood or something like that or, or, or plywood, it, it wouldn't work. Um, and then beheading or fire. You know, if you completely burn something to death, no matter what it is, it's just gone. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the, I, I again, like Gary was saying, we all create our own worlds of how these creatures exist. Um, in, in one of my other vampire stories that belongs to a series of stories that take place in the 18th century and they're about a pirate named uh, William Dethridge. Uh, like Kolchak, he always ends up getting into these trouble with supernatural things. Like that shouldn't happen to a pirate. You just go and you steal things and you 
drink and die. But um, in the first story that I wrote with him, um, he encounters a vampire who has the ability to to re uh, reanimate corpses. So basically, there's he's first he's got to get through zombies, then he's got to deal with the vampire who actually turns out to be a a, a Chinese nobleman who somehow got brought over to England in, in the 1700s. Um, and once they uh, they take care of the vampire, they all of a sudden have to deal with a demon that was basically the patron of that vampire. The vampire worshiped this demon, which shows up in the in the, uh, the form of a gigantic spider. And uh, so, you know, when you know you, you kill the kill the vampire at the very end, his head goes flying off and everybody's like, Phew, all right, well, let's get back to see you go have fun. Well, no, now a giant <laughs> spider comes at you. So uh, that that was called the curse of the curse of the white spider, and um, I, I get a lot of good feedback on that one. It's it's a very it's fun adventure, but with horror thrown in. I wanted because um, we'll, we'll we'll get to shortly uh, talking about classic horror, uh, uh, but um, this is unclassic, but perhaps classic. Uh, your impressions, if you've seen it, I'm, I'm sure you have, uh, the movie Fright Night. Have you all seen that? The one with I... Roddy McDowell from the 80s? Yeah. Okay. I've seen I've seen both versions. Okay. Uh, I own both versions, actually. Uh, my son, you know, uh, he, he's a horror fan. And he and I watched, when it, we watch it a lot. Not we haven't watched it, but it, it, it my point is, uh, it, it, it's so real. Um, what, 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 one of the things I would say about that original film is I think it may very well have been the first, and if not the first, it was very early in the horror comedy genre, um, because it's definitely got the comedic angle to it in a very camp sort of angle, and it's a, it's a really fun movie. Um, I know it's blasphemy to a lot of people, but I actually prefer the remake from a few years ago. Um, but I'm kind of biased because David Tennant's in the remake and David Tennant's my all-time favorite actor. And also, I think the movie's just a little more serious um, and the threat seems a little more real. Um, it's still got a comedic angle to it, but mm -hmm. it's less so than the first one, I think. It's, right. less, it's less campy. I mean, the first one had Roddy McDowell, though. How can you go wrong with Roddy McDowell? But I don't know what anybody else's opinion is on it. It's been a little while since I've seen it, but <laughs> okay. But um, but yeah, I, I I thought it was pretty good. Uh, a lot of those '80s movies, I guess any movie from any era, it gets kind of dated with the, especially the hair in the '80s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the vampire angle is is very strong in that um yeah. and i think uh i think by the time you get to night fright you're probably starting to see some maybe some Anne rice uh vampire uh influence anyway coming in uh, she did least, she did conversations with a vampire an interview with the vampire and uh, really a whole series then too okay. then the vampire lestat came out uh right around the same time as that movie i believe or pretty close to it anyway uh, the sequel, which is actually more of a prequel, but anyway. <laughs> okay. No, uh, for me, uh, Fright Night is is just a scary 
scary because you take you take the world of, of vampires and put it into well back in the 80s but in contemporary times contemporary everything you know it's a dance scene and and you know evil ed and i mean it's just all uh um my, my son and i actually were so enamored with that movie that a, a couple of years ago uh, uh brewster and, and evil ed were at a chiller theater do you guys know about that do you know about it though uh, yeah i've done a couple times yeah the chiller theater uh um it, it it had a, I guess it had its origins way back, bringing in horror uh, characters and and having them man tables and doing autographs and stuff and selling uh, paraphernalia, uh, but it, it expanded uh, and it has grown to where tens of thousands of people go to these things here in Jersey, uh, and we're not talking about. Uh, just horror we're talking about uh major former major you know Floris leachman was there I, I mean i'm just trying to uh some major major stars are there uh um, the one they just had well so my son and i went because we saw that brewster uh in evil ed were going to be there so we have pictures uh with them uh of course we told them both uh, how much we love Fright Night, and it scares the hell out of us still. Um, uh, going back to uh, Lifeblood 2, uh, do you want to touch on the the um, uh, the nonfiction element? Because some of that stuff is great stuff. I mean, it's like, wow. Yeah, there, you know, like I said, I wanted to go ahead and include some nonfiction um, and when I do when I do my nonfiction stories, they're basically short little research papers, um, and I go through research stuff. And I mean, we got two from Rick Hale though, which were older ones that he did. Um, and my friend Mike Corn has one in there, um, which was one he published at Wormwood Chronicles. And the funny thing was, I came across that one sort of by accident um, because I remembered. I mean, I write for Wormwood Chronicles, and so does Bill, I believe, um, but. Uh, I have. You have. <laughs> I haven't in a while. <laughs> you haven't in a while. Okay. So Bill, Bill also has has collaborated with Mike Corn uh, and and Wormwood. And I remembered I was doing something on Elizabeth Bathory for it, and I, I some reason I had remembered that I had read one that Mike Corn had done about Elizabeth Bathory, and I got digging through, and it turned out it was just a small piece of the article he had done. Um, but I thought, well, this would be a good one to reproduce, and so I talked to Mike about it. And, got permission and, and he did that one. And my wife, Diane, uh, I like to a lot of times will, you know, say, hey, you want to get something in this one? She's great at doing the research paper kind of things too. And so she did the Highgate Vampires in London. Um, and uh, I got researching some of these. It's interesting when you look at the historical, again, I'm very much a skeptic. And I know Bill and I talked about when, when I did a chat with him, and, and pretty much everybody else who I've done a chat with so far about this book, none of us really believe that there is such a thing as real life vampires. But there are things that have inspired vampire stories over the years. And, and one of the things that came up a lot of times when researching these, and there were some I didn't actually write about because there just wasn't enough information. They weren't enough, they weren't different enough from some of the others, 
But uh, one of the most common things that was misinterpreted as uh, vampirism way back when was consumption, which is tuberculosis. And a lot of it was because the people would just sort of waste away. And when they would cough, they would cough up blood. And that led to a lot of the vampire things. So a lot of people who died of consumption were later dug up because other people would start to get sick because they caught tuberculosis too. But the superstitious people of the time thought, well, they're a vampire. They're being attacked by the vampire that died. So they dig up the corpse and put a, do whatever they had to do. There were all kinds of different methods. But uh, so that was kind of a, a really common thread. But there were some other really interesting stories in there um, that I came across. Um, one of which was a story about a vampire in um, Louisiana and uh, maybe a hundred years ago. And that's a pretty fascinating little tale because the entire thing seems to be a hoax made up uh, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, somebody came up with some uh, thing that was supposed to be the heart of this vampire in a box and they put it up for sale on eBay well, as it turns out, it was a fake. It was designed by some company that does movie props. And they apparently suddenly after they put that out there, there were all these stories about this vampire that had been hunted down in sort of one of the weirdest like buddy cop stories because there was a Catholic priest and a voodoo priest who got together to hunt this vampire down. And they didn't believe in what each other believed, but they got together because this vampire needed hunting and the police couldn't find him. And you know, it's a total Hollywood story, if you think about it, um, yet people actually believe it's true, but there's no evidence anywhere that it ever actually happened. Um, you know, another one that I found really fascinating was the uh, Gorbals vampire in Scotland, because while I found no evidence that it actually was an influence on the movie The Lost Boys, you've got a bunch of kids who decide there's a vampire in their town. And rather than try to enlist the parents and the, the adults, they just band together to go to hunt down this vampire. And, um, you know, there was a lot more involved in that, than that, but it's a pretty fascinating story. Um, so again, I don't believe that there's such a thing as a, um, as a real life vampire, but there have been some pretty fascinating little uh, vampiric legends that have led to, to frenzies and things like that. And, it's all fascinating stuff and good stories. It is fascinating. Uh, um, um, I have a question for Gary real quick, if you don't mind. Uh, uh -huh. you, you brought up that TB thing because, you know, they used to, you know, vomit blood, things right like there. that. It reminded me, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Have you ever seen um, Andy Warhol's Dracula, also known as Blood for Dracula, I believe? I, I believe that's part yeah. of it. Well, yeah because there's a scene in, because okay in in the world of that vampire story dracula can only survive if he drinks the blood of virgins they have to be virgins so this aristocrat has three daughters and he wants to uh, marry them off of course they don't know he's a vampire they bring him in and he bites each one of them and then none of them are virgins but the father thinks he is so through the whole movie <laughs> Wow. It's kind of a dark comedy, actually. Wow. Throughout the movie, he's biting each daughter and then getting violently ill and throwing <laughs> up blood. And they actually think he has tuberculosis. Oh, that's wow. Right. wow. So the family's actually like, this is great. He's going to die. We're going to get all this money. <laughs> that's it's hilarious. actually a really good uh, 
if you don't mind, right. a little disgusting, but um, well, wow. it's actually really good. <laughs> it's hilarious. I thought. Yeah, Black for more Dracula and Fresh Flesh for Frankenstein. He did yeah. also do Flesh for Frankenstein. Yeah. Yes, which is a little less charming, but uh, <laughs> yeah. no, they're they're but, yeah. fun watches though. Yeah. Also known as Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. As well. yeah, yeah, he had nothing to do with any of that. He just not really. He put his name to it, and that was about it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> something just popped into my head. Uh, you know, you, um, you know, Andy Warhol, this, that, uh, uh, and you, you mentioned Frankenstein, and this is off topic, but it's provocative. A few years ago, I, I went to a conference called Singularity. Uh, as a journalist, and Singularity uh, is, is promoted by Ray Kurzweil, who's got about 160 PhDs. He invented the Kurzweil uh, um, keyboard. I mean, he's a genius. And but his his thing is, and, and it pertains to you guys. Uh, his thing is, what happens in 2040 when man and machine merge, become one? I mean, it's provocative. Uh, and he was, so he put together, he's got a university singularity. They deal with the, the scientific uh, uh, elements. They deal with the ethical uh, elements. You know, is Jeff Bezos, you know, going to be the one who's going to be able to become immortal? But here's the point I wanted to, dealing with Frankenstein, I'm throwing this out to you guys. There, And I, I sat for three days uh, uh, listening to all these, they had uh, Ken Jennings there, the guy who won millions of dollars on Jeopardy, and, and he was priming himself to compete against the IBM's Watson computer. You know, interesting stuff. Uh, but they had it. Here's my point. They had a Russian uh, uh, scientist who was working on transferring this. In other words, if you want to uh, take a file and uh, you know, uh, and transfer it to you know another place, you know you stick the the wire in and you transfer all the elements of a file to wherever you want to put it to another file to um, uh, 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 a portable you know a portable drive. Uh, um, point being. This Russian scientist talked for an hour on taking the elements of this and transferring it to a cyborg. And, and therefore, this, you, me, uh, uh, in, in the body of a cyborg, which is eternal, it lives forever. But uh, so I, you, all of us could live forever because this is what makes us human, this thing up here. And, and you put it into a cyborg, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, but anyway, that, it's funny, they had three days of speakers, that's the only thing I remember. Uh, and, and, and it was very provocative. And this Russian scientist said, it's gonna happen soon. Uh, and what do we, and, and, and therefore, it's just, um, it, it's just very provocative. Um, one of my favorite subjects in, in life is old movies. Um, so if we could drift a little bit uh, into um, you know old movies, uh, you know, Bill, your 
that's one of your things. And by the way, you have a site uh, on Facebook. Uh, why don't you talk about that and, and your affectation with all movies? I do. Um, I have a, a, a Facebook group called Classic Camps, Classic Horror Emporium. Um, and I, it, it, it is amazing to me that I have well over 800 members now because I started with literally 10 people. <laughs> Um, Gary Hill mentioned Mike Korn. He was one of the, for the one of the ten originals. He was among them, and uh, you know it just grew from there. And um, we do a lot of um, classic horror discussion. Um, I try to keep the rules as loose as possible, and so far it's worked. Knock on wood, <laughs> um, because I, I rarely have any trouble with people squabbling or anything. But um, uh, you know, uh, but we do. I, I did come up with a list of the top what I felt anyway, was the top 100 classic horror movies of all time. Uh, and I kind of put that as sort of a guide so people can see, you know, the eras that we talk about. Um, but, you know, we go everything from uh, uh, Silent Horrors, Dr. Caligari, uh, into the usual uh, Universals, which are so popular. It started with Dracula um, and then actually end with uh, uh, the House of Dracula, as far as the, the original monsters go, uh, into the Hammers and the American International Pictures, Roger Corman, all those kinds of things. You know, we go uh, into the 70s, at least, you know, because that's when Hammer was, uh, to me anyway, Hammer was the last real classic horror uh, studio. I guess Hammer and AIP were still both still around, but AIP was starting to change over into what's more modern horror, what we would consider more modern horror now. But um, uh, but we have a lot of fun. We post a lot of things, some jokes, some serious, some informative, you know, so I try to keep it open. And it is an emporium, so people can um promote some of their works if it has to do you know if it's topic appropriate uh it's actually encouraged my rule again uh i keep rules to be kind of fast and loose my rule on that is just don't be annoying you know i think people know <laughs> you know when they're when they're being annoying you know just you know if you want to post something now and again have that, that uh, you, know, you have a, a book or a product or something you know go for it it is an emporium we're supposed to be selling selling things and i do talk about products a lot as well you know uh, this action figure is coming out check this out um, one of my posts this past week is youtube is getting ready to release uh the second season of the godzilla cartoon the hanna-barbera one from uh that went from 78 to what uh, 80 or something anyway late 70s um you know so it's a lot of fun we do a lot of uh, a lot of vampires a lot of bella lugosi because he's my favorite actor and uh, you know i i just can't help but love the guy <laughs> Um, I also have a, um, a project that I'm, I've been working on. Uh, the Horror Writers Association actually gave me a scholarship to do research on it, and I'm writing a book on the history of Frankenstein in film. Wow. Um, you know, so that touches on some... Uh, Dracula pop, pops up in there more often than you would think, actually. <laughs> so... Um... Talking about old films, we, we talked about it briefly before we went on air. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and again, I'm not an expert and I'm not a movie critic, but uh, I have to put The Wolfman uh, pretty much at the top, at least in the top four or five uh, horror films, because when I watch it, it, it is just one of the most emotionally evocative movies uh uh and you you feel such a great affinity to larry talbot uh 
and and you know his new girlfriend and uh uh but anyway your your impressions of, of, of that he's one of my favorites as well um he always has been especially when especially with the old universals you know the Dracula and Frankenstein and uh, Wolfman and Invisible Man and all those other characters. Um, he, he can't help but be tragic. Um, he kills, not that he wants to, but he feels like, oh my God, I killed someone yesterday. You know, tonight I might kill again. You know, he says those kinds of things. Um, you know, so it's, uh, he is definitely uh, one of the most tragic because he's, you know, maybe it's that he's self-aware. You know, like the others, a uh, Frankenstein monster is just a big brute who doesn't know his own strength. Uh, Dracula has to kill to live. Uh, so, you know, he's kind of in that situation. But the Wolfman is more self-aware. He knows that he's a monster, but he's human as well. He just has that that almost Jekyll and Hyde type split uh, to throw another monster out there. Um, you know, so I've always, uh, he was always one of my favorites as well. Um, and uh, another series that became uh, one of my all-time favorites of uh, you brought up the wolfman as well it's definitely inspired by larry talbot wolfman but i don't know if you've seen some of the uh the paul nashi movies uh spanish horror movies yeah they, they used to be on a lot of those um uh those uh hosted horror movie shows in the i guess in the later years of them in the 70s and, and early 80s uh but he did something like 13 or 14 wolfman movies uh mm. called his character was Waldemar uh, Daninsky. Wow. Uh, and he really, and he brought a suave kind of aspect to it as well. It was almost like James Bond is the Wolfman is, you know, um, with these kinds of things. And uh, he was always one of my favorites as well. He brought a lot of that as well. Definitely inspired by the Larry Talbot Wolfman. But if you get a chance, um, they're a little more cheaply made. They're Europe, uh, late 60s into the 70s. And I think they go even into the 80s. And geez, I think his last one was, uh, into the 2000s somewhere there somewhere around 2007 or 8 or something like that is one of the last ones that he did just as Waldemar Daninsky any um you know so he, he's another favorite character of mine uh definitely um Kelton, if I may yes. um, I want to throw a little story out there just a little true life story that I don't think I've ever put out there in an interview and just because this is sort of a fun little story that ties into your Wolfman thing, and it helps to memorialize something my mother told me years ago. Um, in the 50s, my mother and her first husband, who she late after they got divorced, she later remarried him, and he became my stepdad. Anyway, they had a little restaurant uh, in our area, and she would waitress, and he would cook, and they ran this restaurant. So one night she's there and this guy comes in for dinner and she's serving him and she keeps telling him you know you look just like Lon Chaney and she's like my mother was very chatty and so she's telling him about all these roles that she loved Lon Chaney in. and she's like has anybody ever told you you look like him no and when it gets time for him to leave he writes a check and sure enough, it was Lon Chaney Jr. He was in some sort of an event in the area wow. and stopped in there for dinner. <laughs> wow. Great story. Great wow. story. Um, hey, Dell, do uh, you have a particular horror movie that is near the top of your list? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like all the old classic movies, the, the, the Universal guys, uh, stuff like that. But they never really... Um, bit me the way that 
other things. They, they never really bit me the way they should have. Um, you know, watching them as a little kid, I was never scared of them as much as, you know, just thinking that they were awesome. I do remember my little brother hiding when Frankenstein, whenever Frankenstein was on, he would hide behind a chair because he couldn't not watch it, but he wouldn't just go away. You know? um, and I never really, never felt that with those um, movies, but they're, they're definitely, you know, near and dear to my heart. Um, I gravitate more towards the stuff for, uh, from the late 60s and early 70s. Um, you know, all those movies that Bill just mentioned, I've got every one of them. Um, and and I, I've always loved them. Um, two, two movies that are high on my list, let's say three movies high on my list of um, horror movies. Probably one of my favorites, if not my favorite, would be The Blood on Satan's Claw, which is also known as Satan's Skin in, in Europe. Um, very non-traditional horror movie. Uh, first of all, it's, it's a period piece. It takes place in the 1600s. And um, there's uh, basically they, these children in a little English village unearth pieces of the devil. And they sort of form a cult where they're trying to bring him back to life. And his, bits of him show up on different people. And so they have to go and catch those people and hack those bits off. So they can assemble the devil. Very interesting, uh, you know, story. And again, being so crazy into folklore the way I was, um, it just was. It ticked every button for me, and, and um, that's to, still to this day. I have to watch it at least once a year. Um, following straight behind those, that would be like um, Vincent Price, Conqueror Worm, or um, the Witchfinder General. They call it in Britain, which is basically a not very accurate um, retelling of the story of. The Witchfinder, Matthew Hopkins. Um, and again, like reading about that a lot when I was a kid, when I finally saw a movie, I was, I was just like, awesome, you know, thought, thought it was great. Um, and then of the Hammer films, as much as I love them all, um, Captain Kronos Vampire Killer is really high up there for me because, first of all, it's action and vampires mixed, which is great, but also the way they take various vampire folklore and put it into the movie as well as saying that, look, no, no vampire is all the same. Some vampires are like the Dracula kind. Other vampires, you know, might just drain your energy or, or something. Um, and you had to discover what kind of vampire it was you were dealing with. And they very quickly did. And then they very quickly figured out sort of by accident what it was that would kill him. And it turned out it wasn't going to be a cross. It wasn't going to be um, a stake through the heart or anything. It was steel. He had to, this particular vampire had to be killed with steel. And um, so that was that was a huge one for me. That that kind of reminded me of like the uh, Solomon Kane stories, where you're mixing the horror in with the adventure um, stuff. So it's like you, you're never going to get bored, <laughs> and your imagination is just going to go crazy. <clears throat> so those those are the three real big ones for me. Um, but yeah, there there's there's uh, you know tons of them that I like. I just uh, and honestly, I can't think of any others right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm sitting here looking at bookshelves with over 2,000 DVDs on them, and 90% <laughs> of that is horror. <laughs> so, unless I start reading those, I'm not going <laughs> to. That's funny. Gary, your, um, your uh, favorites. Well, um, if you want to go to the Universal uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, without question, my favorite Universal monster and my favorite movie. There's just, I think uh, to me, 
that creature was more believable than some of the other ones. And it has the aspect that so many of the monster movies from King Kong to Frankenstein to the Wolfman all have, which is really in a lot of ways, the creature is the monster is actually the victim. I mean, you know, the creature didn't ask these people to come there. He's just living his life being the creature and they come and mess with him and, you know, try to kill him and try to capture him. And, um, and everything ensues because they try to screw with his natural habitat. So from a universal point of view, that's my favorite. In terms of favorite horror films, for many, many, many years, I'm a John Carpenter fanatic. And for many years, uh, his Prince of Darkness was my favorite horror movie. Um, one of the things I love about John Carpenter is how it's, I call it the snowball effect because it's like a snowball going downhill. Everything starts really small and then it just starts building on itself. And all of a sudden, you don't know when it happened, but all of a sudden you're just in the midst of this complete insanity because everything's going crazy. And it just didn't really seem like a, a fast transition, but yet you're there. Um, but more recently, Color Out of Space, the um, Richard Stanley Lovecraft adaptation, that's become my favorite horror film. I absolutely love that movie. Um, and um, beyond that, uh, I mean, there are a lot of, lot of horror, pretty much any John Carpenter I love. Uh, you know, Christine's brilliant. I've seen it too many times, but it's brilliant. The Thing, I mean, you, you can't go wrong with, oh, in the mouth, uh, what in the mouth of madness? Oh, that movie's insane! It just messes with your head. So, um, yeah, those are kind of be my favorites. Okay, you know, you just said uh, the thing. Now I'm going back because I'm older than you guys to the original. <laughs> thing. Right, right, with James Arness. James Arness, and and again, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, Siskel and Ebert here, uh, and I'm not a great movie critic, but uh, the dialogue in that movie was so riveting. One, so one, of the one of the fascinating things about that movie is the director for that film took a different stand than a lot of other directors in that the dialogue crosses over each other. I mean, it's not like they, they say, okay, it's your turn to talk, now it's your turn to talk. It kind of annoys me, but a lot of people really like it. Um, I guess it's more realistic, but yeah. from the point of view of watching a movie, it sort of bugs me when I watch that movie, but I see why people like it. Uh, it, it because it, to me, it, it, they're just talking, and, and you're right. It, it, to me, it creates more of a sense of reality. Uh, uh, it's so, I, I, I just thought uh, it was so real, the, 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 the the dialogue and, and the repartee and uh, uh, it, it just gripped me. The, the reporter who's writing about this. And I mean, uh, I, I just think it's outstanding. That's my own personal opinion. If, if I may make one more point about that movie and the John Carpenter one, one of my little pet peeves, and it's just a silly thing, is that so many people you see will say, well, John Carpenter did a remake of that movie. No, he didn't. Both movies are based on the same short story, but one's not a remake of the other, despite what people think. Right, right. Yeah. Um, hey, uh, uh, I'm going to do something I've never done um, with you guys, uh, well, with Gary. Uh, completely off topic, but I think it's a great question. 
It's a, you don't have to answer. It's a one word thing. But here's the thing. I'll start with you, Gary, and we'll go around. Um, uh, excluding family or friends, somebody you'd like to spend, somebody living or dead you'd like to spend a day with. Or do I have to pick one? <laughs> you no, know, you can pick a couple. There's no rules here. Uh, Stephen King would be one. And the funny thing is I'm not a huge Stephen King fanatic. Uh, I, in, in fact, he writes in a completely opposite way from the way I do, because I'm a very minimalistic writer and he's the exact opposite of that. But he and I have a lot of common uh, inspirations. And I think we'd, we'd find a lot in common to talk about. And it would be pretty interesting to chat with him be, about writing because we do come from completely opposite angles on it. And obviously he's much more popular, but, um, but he would be one. And another one would certainly be David Tennant because as I said, my favorite actor. And he seems like a really, really cool guy who's into fandom. And I think he'd be a lot of fun to hang out with. Okay, Bill. Um, one of my favorite directors is probably Roger Corman, uh, still around. <clears throat> I would love to sit and chat and have a little lunch with him. That would be <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Um, you know, there are, there are a number of writers. Lovecraft. I'm a huge fan of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, you know, um, I've been told some of my works um, kind of follow some of what he does as well. Um, so, you know, I, I have a little Lovecraft uh, in influence, at least. Um, so those would be uh, okay. definitely a couple of them. Okay. Del? Um, I've, I've been asked this question before, and I've, I've never really been able to give a single answer mm -hmm. like, like these guys. Um, I love Bill's answer, actually. Um, Roger Corman would be, first of all, a very charming dinner companion but also the stories he's gonna have are just gonna keep you like you'd be like no you're not going anywhere keep talking <laughs> so that that's a great answer um but uh you know i i try to think about the people that had inspired me and you know would they always say never meet your heroes so i, I tried to leave people like lovecraft out um i think literary wise it would probably be somebody like uh, ray bradbury I, I would love to sit and talk with Ray Bradbury and just, well, rather sit and listen to Ray Bradbury. Um, but just in, in overall, just how amazing it would be, it would be like Vincent Price or Christopher Lee. I mean, these, these two guys just live these lives that are so incredible. And Christopher Lee's is obviously a lot more, you know, fantastic and dangerous and, you know, being, being in the British secret service and all that. Um, but you know, Vincent Price has got to be the, one of the most lovable people in the, in the planet. Um, and yeah, again, just the stories they would tell you um, would, would just be such great fun. Um, so I, I'd have to go with one of those guys. Vincent Price, I would love to just sit and listen to him talk. I mean, he could yes. just, he could read from a phone book and it would just, I would just sit there and be enamored and just, you know, Absolutely. hang on every word. To this day, we, I still do. Anyway, I have, a huge collection of um, people reading stories and, and telling stories um, on DVD and, and even tape uh, and, you know, Christopher Lee doing Poe, that kind of stuff. Um, but the ones that are my favorite absolutely are the Vincent Price ones where he's reading these short stories, uh, you know, that you, we've all heard of, you know, like uh, thus I refute Beelzee and stuff like that. Um, and I, I try to listen to those around Halloween every year, you know, and because just, hearing Vincent Price talk is so amazing. Tom Baker is another one. 
I like I just love hearing Tom Baker talk. I, I've always said that if I had a, like a some sort of navigational thing in my car, I would want it to be Tom Baker. So he'd be like, <laughs> "Go left here," you know. <laughs> sort of a jelly belly, wise voice, yeah. jelly baby. <laughs> yeah. Interesting answers, guys. Uh, I I I couldn't even answer it myself. I'm all over the place. Could you could you come up with? Five, three. <laughs> well, I, I personally, uh, um, one of them goes back to biblical times. Um, uh, that's a heavy subject, or a little less heavy. George Washington, right? You know, I'm always fascinated how they accomplished what they did with what they had, uh, uh, and and their vision. You know all these guys' vision in, in creating, um, in, in creating uh, a concept of government, you know, for and by the people. Great stuff. But uh, I'm all over the place. Right. Uh, I'm all over the place on that. Uh, hey, Claude Rains. Uh, I'd love to chat with him. You know what a great character and actor. <clears throat> you know he played a, a great role in, in Casablanca which is a movie that changed my life. Right. I watched that last night. You're kidding. <laughs> no, I did. Did yeah. you? I oh, did, wow. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not plugging myself because I don't <laughs> plug myself, but... Love that movie. I, I wrote my first novel. It's a very spiritual thing. It's called Vichy Water, and it, it emanates from Casablanca. Okay. There's a whole bunch of Casablanca yeah. in here. And it's because... I watched Casablanca one morning 15, 16 years ago for the 50th, 60th time. I'm a little OCD. And, and I couldn't play tennis one morning. It was raining. I didn't know what to do. I'm sitting in my tennis shorts. So some energy comes to me and said, Calvin, go watch Casablanca. So I put it on for the 54th time 15 years ago. Uh, and, and, and I watched it at the very end. You know, uh, uh, Rick shoots Major Strasser, uh, and 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 carry away the the, the smile, uh, the smile that Rick Blaine has, Humphrey Bogart, when Claude Rains tells the cops the gendarmes round up the usual suspects. Yeah, they take he he has that faint smile because he knows he's saving him. Uh, yeah, I was, I was a little. I was a little late to Casablanca. It was one of those movies that, you know, I caught it in the middle. I didn't want to, you know, I turned it off because I didn't want to catch it in the middle. So eventually, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I finally said, all right, next time it comes on TCM, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch it. And, uh, you know, I was kind of into the, the top 100 movies of American Film Institute, you know, trying to get through as many of those as I could for a while. I was like, okay, I got to sit. And I think... I think that should be number one at this point. It, you know, it's, it's pretty close to one or two. It's, uh, one, two, yeah, it's usually three. Like two or three or something. Yeah, they, yeah Citizen the Godfather. Kings always first, which is also amazing. But yeah, I think Casablanca is it's like a movie watcher's movie. And if you don't mind me circling back to uh, horror, um, you were talking about favorite movies. One of my all-time favorite of the classic horror movies is actually The Bride of Frankenstein. And I sometimes personally refer to that as the Casablanca of horror. Oh, wow. Because it is just like, it's kind of like Casablanca where, you know, it's a movie person's movie. It's, I mean, it's reality, but it's not reality. It's reality within its own world. And 
to me, Bride of Frankenstein does the same thing with horror. You know, it just it's so perfectly put together. James Whale, another one of my all-time favorite directors, um, directed that. And I think uh, you know, that that movie to me, it's it's like a work of art. It's it's hardly even a movie. I, I can't, you know, I can't glow on that one enough. <laughs> okay. That that uh was that Elsa uh Lance uh, I'm trying to remember who played Yeah, Elsa Lanchester. Right. Elsa Lanchester, yes. Okay. Um she has like less than two minutes of screen time and it's yep. her image has become iconic. Iconic. Yeah. I mean <laughs> indelible. Uh, uh absolutely indelible. Great stuff. Um so uh I I guess this we you know what we could we should come back because we can uh we can go on and there's so many things we should come back and, and I'll leave that in Gary's department. Uh, Gary, uh, please tell people uh, Life Led to where, uh, and why don't you all uh, just do a little bit of contact stuff so people can know where to reach you. Take it away, Gary. Okay, for uh, Life Led 2, you can pick that up at lulu.com slash spotlight slash strange sound, or if you go to garyhillauthor.com and you click on the Tales of Wonder and Dread link, you'll see there are a couple pages of books there and you can get a link to it there. Uh, it'll say Goodreads, which takes you to the Goodreads listing. Uh, I think there's either it says Lulu or paperback for the paperback version and then hardcover for the hardcover version. And uh, you can pick that up. And uh, that's that's uh, Life Flood 2. And you can get the first one there too. Might as well buy them both at the same time. <laughs> okay, Bill. Your contacts uh, info. Uh, my contacts, of course, we talked about my group, um, Classic Camps, Classic Horror Emporium. Uh, I also write a blog, although I haven't done it in a while. Uh, <laughs> uh, classic Camps, Classic Blog. Um, I am Classic Camp. And actually, we talked about the music connection earlier. I should have brought this up then. But uh, the name Classic Camp, if you go on the blog and you see the one blog that was about a bio, comes from classic rock movie uh, music. Because I uh, in college, I had a column called Classic Camp, all about classic rock music. And that's where actually the name comes from. So <laughs> I had my rock phase in there as well. You know. oh, anyway, so we've, yeah, those... we've all got the music angle, too. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Start with horror, go to music, and then go back to horror. Seem, apparently seems to be the, uh, <laughs> the thing. Um, but if you don't mind me throwing a couple of extra plugs out there, um, yes. I also have a uh, I also have a poem out right now in um, Alternative Deathiness, uh, an anthology of short stories and poetry all about death um, and dying. So, uh, And mine was inspired by um, one of the oldest churches in continental United States, which is not too far from where I live in Smithfield, Virginia. Uh, it's titled Old Forgotten Grave. And I just wrote a little poem about the, the old graves that you see with the washed away lettering can barely even see the name or anything. Um, and I also have a short story coming out, uh, should be out by the end, before the end of the year, I think, uh, in um, uh, Madame Gray's Potpourri, P-O-E hyphen P-O-U-R-R-I. So all oh, stories cool. inspired by Poe right. in my short story. And that one will be uh, Beheaded, will be coming out. Yeah. Uh, Okay, there's uh, there's delmerit.com, 
where you can go and find uh, my books in addition to links to Gary's books. Um, I think I've been included in the last four books that he's made. Um, so those are on there. Um, but I just released a book this week, which is the second in a series called The Chronicles of the Black Queen, which is uh, a very, very adult um, horror uh, horror fantasy, dark fantasy kind of thing. Um, and I also uh, put out one called Dark Wizardry, which is not quite as adult-centric, but still pretty adult-centric. Um, and uh, next, I'm not sure what I'm working on next. I think uh, it's going to be a, a, a book called Darksome, and I hope to have that out in a couple months. Um, which, uh, most of these books are, uh, as I've talked to Gary about this, most of these books are actually pretty nasty. They'd be rated R or X if they were movies, let's say. Um, so you, the younger viewers want to stay away from that. Um, but uh, yeah, delmerit.com, you can uh, take a look at that stuff. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, this is a great way to do a wrap, guys. Um, please come back. Uh, we can just go on and on and on and there's great uh, there's great infiltrations of my journalism and the spiritual stuff and there's combinations of both and it, it's it's like endless and and, and uh, I think this was great really uh, and, and, and good chemistry uh, and, and great special effects with Dell uh, <laughs> So, you know, uh, I miss my calling. <laughs> this is great special effects. Uh, uh, and, and it's really, I, and it's really growing on me the more uh, I'm watching you. Uh, it, it's, uh, but anyway, <laughs> guys, thank you so much for this. Uh, and please do come back. Uh, I'm going to officially sign off, but don't disappear. We'll do a, an official wrap. But thanks so much, guys. Truly, this was great. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.